Coming up, the stage is set for Super Bowl 56 at SoFi Stadium in Los Angeles. As for the second year in a row, a team will play in their friendly confines as the Rams climb Mount San Francisco and exercise some demons, while the upstart Bengals shock the world and upset the Kansas City Chiefs. I'll break down how both teams got there with some early storylines heading into the big game. There's a new Iron Man in the NHL with the All-Star break on the horizon as the league exhales before ramping up a stretch of makeup games due to the pandemic. The Nets have been floundering as of late with reports that James Harden has become unhappy in Brooklyn. Is he on his way out? What about Ben Simmons in Philadelphia? Rafael Nadal makes history. Yes to David Ortiz. No to Barry Bonds and Roger Clemens for the Hall of Fame. Plus, are the players and owners making headway in baseball? Does anybody care about the Winter Olympics? I close out the month of January in grand fashion with a robust serving of sports chatter. But first, this message. What has happened to my good people? Thank you so much for passing by to listen to me wax poetic as I talk about anything and everything that's happening in the world of sports. If you haven't done so, please subscribe, rate, and review this podcast on wherever you listen to podcasts. I'm on all available platforms. You can also go to the website at www.jreels.com for more information about yours truly, the podcast, archive shows, etc. All I want to do is increase the visibility of this podcast, so please throw me a few stars, write a review. It will go a long way into getting the word out. Even take a screenshot, send it to your friends, send it to me on social media. I'm more than happy, willing, able, and open to get your feedback on what it is that you enjoy most about the J Reels podcast. So with that being said, let's hit it. The J Reels podcast begins in 5, 4, 3, 2, 1. Let's get this sports podcast party started, all right? The J Reels Podcast. Why don't you wait until July 1st to make an announcement? What a disgrace. He can rack up all these numbers in October, November, and December, but what really counts is let me see this in January. The Sports Rebel Without a Pause, delivering fast-paced, jam-packed sports talk like no other. Listen, I gotta call it as I see it, he is not a good player. I'm sick and tired of having to deal with the disappointment of this franchise. When does it stop? And yes, another winter that I can sleep in peace. Coming correct, direct, and in full effect. Let's get it. This is the J. Wills Podcast. Welcome aboard. What is happening, my good people? Greetings. How are you? How's it going? How's everybody doing out there? What is the latest and greatest? Hope everybody's well, feeling fantastic, and excellent spirits as always, as the final day of January has arrived. One month is just about in the books. Tomorrow is February 1st. The day after that is Groundhog Day. Before you know it, it's going to be Valentine's Day, President's Weekend, and then we'll turn the clocks up. It'll be March Madness, and then the first day of spring will arrive. I understand. I'll pump the brakes. Let me slow down. We don't want to rush time. We got to go through this process. We just came out of a storm here in the Northeast. There's still plenty of winter to go. But the point of me bringing this all up is because January went by in a flash. And even if your year did not get off to the way you liked it or set it out to be, that's okay. Because there is today. You're alive. You're breathing. I'm sure you still have your goals, dreams, hopes, aspirations intact. Don't let that slip away. Don't let your job get to you. Don't let the people out there... Be a part of your good energy and try to get you off kilter. Uh Uh-uh. Scratch that out. Just make sure that you take a deep breath. Exhale. Have something nourishing to eat. Maybe get a little workout in. Some stretching. Some positive reinforcements. 
Go about your day and make sure that you don't let whatever it is that's burning inside of you die on the vine. So with that little message aside, let's get right to it because there is tons to get into here on the latest edition of, you guessed it, the J Reels Podcast with your host, J Reels. For my first timers, welcome aboard. And for those who have been banging with me for now 236 episodes, I welcome you guys and gals back. It is a Monday, January the 31st in the year of our Lord, 2022. The J Reels What's the Deal segment, what's expected on this podcast is as follows. Rafael Nadal wins his 21st Grand Slam tournament as he is the all-time winningest men's player in tennis history, winning his second Australian Open yesterday. Now with the French Open on deck this spring, and he being the best clay player of all time, will he extend his record lead over his contemporaries Novak Djokovic and Roger Federer? I'll dive into that later on, as well as Ashley Barty winning the women's side and her third Grand Slam overall. The Nets have had a soap opera season to date. But now there's rumblings about James Harden wanting out of Brooklyn. Plus, the Ben Simmons saga continues in Philadelphia as the trade deadline is just 10 days away. I'll have everything that's happening in the association as well as the NHL set to have their All-Star weekend forthcoming in Vegas as the league will take a brief pause before making up a ton of games due to the pandemic. Also, there's a new Ironman in the sport, but he does have some competition nipping at his heels. As far as Major League Baseball, David Ortiz is next up to be enshrined in Cooperstown. But with Barry Bonds and Roger Clemens not making the 75%, which would have guaranteed them being a part of the Hall of Fame, I know that there's a big giant hypocrisy with the writers bringing in David Ortiz and not electing Bonds and Clemens. And you know what that's all about. So between that and also the latest with the owners and players as far as the labor agreement goes, I'll have that later on. Does anybody care about the Winter Olympics and the games in Beijing? You know I have my two cents on that. All that, including my hero and zero of the week. Now there are two teams left standing to reach the mountaintop of the NFL season that is 2021. And after a pretty much historic and epic divisional weekend last week, what was the NFL to do as an encore with the AFC and NFC title games yesterday? And I know to a lot of people, there was a surprise in one game and maybe a little bit of a surprise in the second one. And as we break it down, the first thing I can only think of is that if you are a diehard fan of a woe-begone franchise. And I'll just stick with football in this regard. So whether you are the New York Jets, the Detroit Lions, and they actually tie into this a little bit, even the Cleveland Browns, teams that have not seen a Super Bowl either in 50-plus years or never even made it to a Super Bowl. Well, you do have some hope. And I get it. You need to have the quarterback. You need to have the coach. You need to have the word that's thrown around a lot, the culture. Get all that. But when you saw, if you watched, and I'm sure you did, what took place in Arrowhead Stadium yesterday where you had the upstart Bengals, a team that has not reached these heights in 34 years, a team that has not played for an AFC Championship game in almost three and a half decades. And a team that was 
a pretty much a big underdog going into the game against a chief team that is playing in their fourth straight AFC championship game. When we look at how the game played out, and you know there's a lot to digest and certainly dissect when it comes to both sides, whether you're a Bengal fan and obviously a Chief supporter. But for those fan bases that watched and witnessed what took place yesterday, I'm sure there's a part of you that says, I don't know when that's going to happen, and chances are, as long as I'm alive, that may not ever happen. But at least I can hold out hope for the day, for the time, that my team can make it to a Super Bowl. Because if you're my dear friends, Risa Saslow, who was on the podcast a week and a half ago, Brian Murray, and of course my guy Jai Shields, you know that the black and orange was bubbling in their respective households because the Cincinnati Bengals, the Bengals, aka the Bungles, I can't say they're no more, but we could certainly put that to rest, at least for right now. And before I even get into both teams' perspectives as far as just the game, when we saw from the opening gun, pretty much, after their three and out, and how the Chiefs just ran up and down the field pretty much the entire first half, running out to a 21-3 lead, it just made you think that, well, maybe it wasn't in the cards for at least one of the two games on Championship Sunday because based on what I said earlier about the divisional round and how coming into this first game, they were riding high and if there's going to be anything close to the drama and excitement that we saw last week, I tell you, within the last minute and a half before the end of the first half of that game, you thought there's no way that this is going to turn out to be anything but that. But when we look at that final drive of the first half where the Chiefs back again in Bengal territory, now deep at the shade of the goal line, and when we look at how those plays unfolded to where the aggressiveness of the Chiefs, and rightfully so because they were able to just do whatever they wanted on offense to where the Bengals had no idea or no clue how to slow down or even stop this Chief offense, but they were able to get a big play. You want to call Andy Reid or even Eric Bieniemy out for that play call at five seconds left where Mahomes threw it in the flat there to Tyreek Hill and then he was tackled inbounds to where the clock expired and the Chiefs went into the locker room up 21-3, feeling good and they were going to get the second half kickoff but maybe that put a little gas in the tank of the Bengals knowing that, okay, we're still down by 18 points. Yes, it was an ugly first half defensively. Yes, we weren't able to muster anything on offense. Okay, here we are at the state of the game where we have to come out and do it again to slow down this chief offense. Well, at least we could go to the locker room knowing that there was a moral victory and let's see if they could build from that going into the second half. Because as much as the Chiefs were able to do whatever they wanted on offense in the first half, the Bengals could not do that. And even as the Chiefs jumped out to a 7-0 lead, here came the Bengals. They marched down the field. They got deep in Chief territory to the point where they had a horrific 
non-call because what the back judge was doing by not throwing that flag on T. Higgins in the end zone where that was a blatant pass interference and you could even argue that the play after that on third down to Jamar Chase in the corner of the end zone, bang, bang, yes it was, but you possibly could have thrown a flag on that play as well, but the T. Higgins was inexplicable. He was trying to catch the ball with one hand and he didn't even argue with the refs. I guess maybe he felt as if he had a play on the ball or he was that close from making that one-handed catch, almost similar to what you saw last week with A.J. Brown in the game against the Bengals. But, and let's face it, the referees, for the most part, they've let the teams play here over the last two weeks. As you saw, the number of penalties drop precipitously from the regular season to the wild card round, division round, and even here in the championship round. But be that as it may, they kicked a field goal. That was the only drive that they were able to sustain in the first half. So you had to think, as you get into the second half of this game, it was just a matter of time before the Chiefs get back on track, maybe kick a field goal there, and away we go. But one other thing before I even get to that, I was alright with the aggressiveness by the Kansas City Chiefs. I hated the play calls there. Obviously that one to Tyree Kill, you gotta take a shot in the end zone. And with the proximity to where you were to the goal line, you figure you could get a quick play off. And even if it wasn't there, Mahomes could have just thrown it to the back of the end zone. You bring in Butker, chip shot field goal, 24-3 with one second on the clock, and that's it. So play call's awful, but I like them going for it instead of settling for the field goal with five seconds left when they absolutely had time to run another play and kick a field goal if necessary. So now as we get to the second half, the... Chiefs weren't able to muster anything on that first drive. Now here come the Bengals as they start to get their offense going. And sure enough, they get that touchdown to Samaj P. Ryan, who on a screen goes up the sideline. I don't know where the Chiefs were, if there was a little bit of a breakdown, but P. Ryan was able to get a touchdown, pay dirt, 21-10. So now you're thinking, all right, let's see if the Bengals could do it again defensively because in the back of your mind, you're thinking... Flick of the switch, this chief offense, similar to Steph Curry and the Golden State Warriors, when they get those flurry of threes going, it seems like the game will be out of reach. Wasn't the case on the next drive. So then the Bengals capitalize, they're able to kick a field goal, and then now the biggest play of the game, I thought that the Bengals, and I tweeted this throughout the afternoon, that they were going to need to get a big turnover at some point in order for them to get back in this game. And with those three drives by the Chiefs, at the end of the first half and the first two of the second half, you just thought that, okay, now they're going to get started. Now they're going to get cranking and they'll move the ball. They'll move the chains. All right, they may not get a touchdown, but they'll kick a field goal. They'll make it a two-score game to where it'll be 24-13 at the very least. And let's see how the Bengals respond from there. As it was, I don't know what Mahomes saw, but he had a quick slant, which looked like In the middle of the field, it was deflected by the defensive lineman, B.J. Hill. They get the turnover that they desperately needed deep in their own territory. So now the Bengals are cranking. Before you know it, Joe Cool, 2.0, Joe Burrow, making plays here, making plays there. Next thing you know, at the goal line, two-yard touchdown to Jamar Chase. And then they have to go for two, where they find the wide receiver out in the flat. They tie the game at 21, and now we have a ball game. So here's where you thought, all right, well, maybe now the Chiefs will finally wake up. They have to shake out the cobwebs. Let's see what they could muster here on this 
Next drive. Sure enough, they couldn't do anything. Bengals stop them again. Bengals made big adjustments there. If you recall in the regular season game, late in the season, I believe it was what, week 17, where the Chiefs went into Paul Brown Stadium, Cincinnati, and they had two big leads in that game, 14-0 and 28-14 to where the Bengals came back and, as we all know, won the game 34-31. All right, the game was at home. The Chiefs were due to lose. But now we're getting to see a carbon copy of this Bengal defense playing stout, dropping eight back, not getting too much of a rush there on Mahomes at this juncture of the game. So now the Bengals actually have an opportunity to take the lead. And sure enough, they go ahead and do so late in the fourth quarter, 24-21. So now you're thinking, can the Bengals actually pull this out? No, there's no way that Mahomes could be shut out here in the second half of this game. Can he? So now, as we look at the clock, and the Bengals, and their fans, and there were quite a few Bengal fans in that stadium there yesterday afternoon. Six minutes, four seconds left on the clock. Now the Chiefs start to move the ball. They start to make plays. They're getting some chances, they're getting some opportunities, converting some third downs. Now you get to a point where they're in the shadow of the goal line. First and goal, where they run Jarek McKinnon off tackle for a yard, and then here's where my head exploded, because on second down, the Bengal pass rush, which didn't really touch Mahomes much throughout the course of the afternoon, only one sack up until that point, they get a bit of a rush, Mahomes is trying to get out of the pocket, but he gets... Sacked there to where it's now second and goal, but somewhere, I want to say off the top of my head, at around the 11-yard line, and then on third down, what in the hell was Mahomes thinking? Mahomes is scrambling around, he's trying to impersonate Fran Tarkenton from back in the day, and I'm going way back with that one, to where he's going right, going backwards, turning around, now going left, going back, to the point where he gets sacked. You would think Patrick Mahomes was a rookie and didn't even know what to do there. Not only did a lot of time go off the clock, but even more so, he gets sacked to where Butker now has to kick a 44-yard field goal instead of pretty much a chip shot. And it made you think, what was the play call there where Biennemi and Andy Reid, what did they come up with there? Because when you look back on the end of the first half and then now here at the end of the second half, it was just deplorable. So, luckily for them, Bucker, very good field goal kicker. He was able to knock it through. You get into overtime, and then the dreaded coin flip to where the Bengals select heads, it was tails, and then right away, you thought about last week to where the Chiefs got the ball, and we saw what happened in the game against the Bills. They got the ball, they marched down the field, and punched it into the end zone. Josh Allen didn't get the ball, and let's have the controversy sparked all over again about... Both teams should get the ball in overtime. It shouldn't be just the one team. If they score a touchdown, that's it. As you saw, Mahomes was trying to do a little bit too much to the point where he threw the ball in double coverage on third down on a great play by Jesse Bates as he tipped it to where Vaughn Bell makes the interception, gets a little bit of a run back. But then the Bengals on some big plays there by Joe Cool 2.0. And mind you, He had the escapability of Houdini on some of these plays, not just on this drive, but on the previous drives to where he looked like he was going to be sacked. 
He looked like he was about to be taken down to the turf. He escaped. He ran for first downs. He escaped. He's throwing passes over the sideline, completing them. Uh, The guy was just unflappable. And then T. Higgins, who looked like he was a giraffe because he has those long arms making some acrobatic catches in the middle of the field. Jamar Chase wasn't much of a factor in this game, especially the way he was in that regular season game against the Chiefs, but still had the touchdown earlier. And between Higgins, Tyler Boyd, and just a total team effort offensively for them to not only come back on the road, down 18 points in this game, but then to set up shop to where Joe Mixon had a big run there to set them up pretty much right at the 15-yard line. And then Evan McPherson, speaking of a guy with a cool, calm, and collected nature who has hit, up until this point, 11 straight field goals to start off his NFL career. Obviously a rookie record, surpassing Steven Gostowski, I believe in the 2007 season, as a member of the Patriots. And here it is, McPherson lining up to punch their ticket to go to the Super Bowl. And sure enough, what happens? He splits the uprights. And as I sat there watching on my sofa, I said, in the same sentence, the Cincinnati Bengals are going to the Super Bowl. I couldn't believe it. But I was ecstatic for him. I was happy for my close friends who are diehard fans. I was happy for this team who was literally 2-14 and two years ago to where they selected Joe Burrow as the number one pick overall. Four wins last year. And here they are, ready to take a flight at the end of the week to go to LA to play in their third ever Super Bowl. And there's so much to even digest, not only just from the game. And I understand this is more of an indictment on the Chiefs than it is the Bengals, but the Bengals have to get their bouquets. First off, the defense. How they clamped down in the second half and only gave up three points, which is the exact amount they gave up in the regular season game just three weeks prior. Just an unbelievable job. I mean, what could you say? And it's not as if they have a ton of game wreckers on that side of the ball. It's not as if they had that dominant defensive player or the one guy that you really say, ah, that's the identity of this Bengal defense. They bring in Trey Hendrickson from the Saints who had just a monster year and he gutted out the final stretches of this game as you saw. You have guys in their secondary, as I mentioned, Jesse Bates, Von Bell came up with that big play there. They're linebackers led by Jermaine Pratt, but again, You know, these aren't guys that are household names by any stretch. And here they are, making big plays against that big-time offense that literally had their way with this defense in the first half. So right away, they get game ball number one. Number two, how could you not like what you see out of Joe Burrow? This guy has ice water in his veins. Nothing bothers this guy. As I said last week, and you saw he was just abused to the total of nine sacks against that Titan defense. And even though he was only sacked once yesterday, but again, even in the rush, escaping the rush, not panicking, not blinking, just precision focus. And again, as I said before, just unflappable in his demeanor, 
his performance, the poise, etc. This guy's everything you want in a quarterback. And I get it. People are like, whoa, Jay Reels, relax. I mean, how could you not? What did you watch? Have you seen how this guy's performed under pressure? And I get it that the Bengals have had house money here in these games in Tennessee and in Kansas City, but they were down 21 to 3 on the road in that hostile environment. And they came out of it with an AFC championship. How could you not like what you see? And give it up. Joe Mixon, contribution, T. Higgins, guys just picking it up where Jamar Chase, although had the touchdown, but didn't have the monster numbers offensively. And the Bengals are worthy and deserving of being the AFC representative in the Super Bowl. There's no other way to slice it. And as for the Chiefs, Mahomes takes a hit here. And he had a great first half, as you saw. But just like we talked about with guys like Aaron Rodgers and the big-time quarterbacks that are expected to do big things. And mind you, Mahomes and their team has made it to this spot for the fourth consecutive year. But this one, 21-3, had the Bengal team on the ropes. And it wasn't until the final drive in regulation where he actually made plays and was able to get the equalizer with the field goal there as time expired. But then in the overtime, uh, he didn't do anything. Coughed up the ball, threw the interception, and as it was, remember that fumble there where the Bengals could have pounced on it, and I'm sure a lot of Bengal fans gasped as if they probably thought, oh, that was our chance to probably go to the Super Bowl at that point. Mahomes was the total opposite of what you saw from Joe Burrow in the second half of this game. And that's why Burrow's performance is five-star. Because what you saw out of Mahomes there in the second half and in the overtime makes you shake your head for a second to say, wait a minute, as great as this guy is, he didn't deliver his team to a victory. So to have a 21-3 lead at home and for him to not be able to get his team out of the fire to be that guy to say, all right, I got this, guys. Enough playing. Let's get this team to LA, to SoFi, and get back to a Super Bowl that we lost last year down in Tampa. That wasn't the case. So Mahomes takes a hit in my eyes here. Now, is he still a great player? Of course. And you can't knock what he's done in the league to this point. But if that game was on the road... You would still knock him, but you say, all right, the crowd, energy, etc. This game was in his building. How do you lose that game? So this one gets put in the box of moments that you are not going to be able to forget on the negative side when it comes to Mr. State Farm. Because that's all you see. I mean, obviously, you haven't seen Aaron Rodgers there yesterday in any of those State Farm commercials. It was Mahomes or nothing. And Andy Reid, that play calling there at the end of the first half and the second half, I I don't know what to say. That was like the Andy Reid of old. Those days in Philly in the early days as his tenure of the Chiefs, whether it was the game in Indianapolis when they were up 38-10, the game against the Tennessee Titans when in your building you were down, or excuse me, you were up by that same score, 21-3. I don't think it was at the half though. But you lost to Marcus Mariota 
and the Titans in your building 22-21. You kind of brought back those memories of Andy Reid's past as opposed to the AFC Championship game, valiant effort, but lost to New England, obviously the Super Bowl, and then they were on last year. But man, Andy Reid, what were those play calls there down the stretch? So, kudos to the Bengals. A big hit here for Mahomes and Andy Reid. Just another bad, ugly notch in the belt of his coaching career that gets put into the vault when it comes to playoff misery. And what could you say? As for the nightcap, now, I said it last week. To me, this game was fascinating on so many levels. Obviously, San Francisco owning the Rams here over the last three years. Them winning in that building just three weeks prior where it seemed like all of San Francisco flocked down to SoFi to root their Niners into the postseason. And as it was, although it seemed to be split, you still had a lot of Niner fans in the building. But the Ram fans did represent there yesterday at SoFi. And... Matthew Stafford, him having this game in their building, all the pressure that was going to be on his shoulders to deliver, which was the reason why he was traded from Detroit to the Rams to get them to this point and into a Super Bowl. And to think, today was actually the anniversary of that trade to where Stafford for Goff and all those number one picks were exchanged. And here it is a year later, and he's got them to the promised land. But it got off to a little bit of a shaky start as the Rams were able to muster a drive to where he was picked off in the end zone. He threw a bad pass there that was behind, I believe it was Cooper Cup off the top of my head. And it was deflected in the air and intercepted. And that was a sign that I thought that maybe Matthew Stafford, not to say he was going to be unable to come back from, but who knows if that was going to be a situation where that was going to play in Stafford's head over and over throughout the course of the game to where it would affect his play. And then right after that, speaking of the referees not blowing whistles, Fred Werner took a shot at him, which was Bush League, and they didn't even call a flag on that. I'm surprised Stafford didn't get up and yelled and screamed at the ref, but he just you know, pointed at his helmet and tried to, I guess, do it politely. And that was one of the reasons why I thought that maybe that play and then even that hit, not to say that it affected him as far as his health goes, but... By Warner taking that shot, in essence, that was him trying to get into, no pun intended, Stafford's head. Because he's in the deep end of the pool, he's never played in an NFC Championship game, the Rams have never been able to get over the hump, and I thought at that moment, "Mm, this is something we have to watch here. As it was, that was not the case. In fact, Stafford was able to put together an 18-play, 97-yard drive, which ended in pay dirt, a nine and a half minute drive at that. And that's when you thought, okay, Stafford, he was able to rally the troops. He was able to weather that storm. And now he could go about his business to get his bearings and go about his business to play the rest of this game. So as Cooper Cup made that touchdown pass to make it 7 nothing, within... Two and a half minutes, here come the Niners and Debo Samuel as he had that pass by Jimmy Garoppolo. Kind of reminded me a little bit of the game prior with Samaji Perrine who had that touchdown off of that screen. And Debo dives into the end zone to make it 
7-7. And then later in the half where we had the play by Stafford as the Rams are driving and Stafford throws that long pass to where the receiver Skoronek now the pass was not a good throw by Stafford. Skoronek actually had to turn around do a a la Willie Mays 1954 World Series type catch but Skoronek I'm sure in that particular scenario was not the guy that he was going to go to. He ended up being wide open and that was going to be a tough catch for Skoronek so you can't get on his case but Stafford was unable to make that throw. They had to settle for a long field goal, which was missed by Matt Gay. And on that ensuing drive by the Niners, they were able to move the chains, get themselves in field goal position, and Robbie Gould was able to connect there to make it 10-7. And maybe you thought, a little momentum on the Niners' side. Let's see what the Rams do come second half. And as it was, as we get deep into the third quarter, where the Niners were able to Get into the end zone, George Kittle, the tight end, less than two minutes to go. And now you had to think at this point, this is where Matthew Stafford, this is where Sean McVay, this is where the entire Ram organization had to regroup. They knew that this next drive was going to be critical to not only this game, but to everything that they pushed their chips to the middle of the table to make it to a Super Bowl. And as it was, they were able to capitalize in rather quick fashion, march down the field. There goes that man again, Cooper Cup, with another touchdown catch. They made it 17-14. And right away you're thinking, okay, the Rams are back in it. Let's see what the Niners can do. This is going to be critical for them to try to get that ugly drive, whether it's runs by Debo Samuel or Elijah Mitchell. Yes, some critical third down catches by Samuel, even George Kittle for that matter. They needed to move the chains and get the clock on their side. They were unable to do it. Mind you, prior to that, and I'm going to get to what happened here as far as these challenges and Sean McVay, who I'm not a fan of, and I'll get to that in a little bit. At 17-14, now the Rams get the ball after the Niners punt and on the very first play Stafford goes back to pass he throws a lollipop to the middle of the field where Jaquiski Tart and I'm sorry if that was me standing back there I would have caught that with my eyes closed and before people could say oh Jay Reels you don't know what you're talking about you never played in the NFL you don't know what it's like the pressure so on and so forth I'm sorry watch that play a thousand times That was like catching a fly ball, a routine fly ball in the top of the fourth inning in an exhibition game somewhere in Arizona or Florida. I mean, you mean to tell me that nobody in their right frame of mind would have not caught that ball? I'm sorry. Maybe Jaquiski Tart saw it was there and it took forever to land. Or maybe he was looking to see how much run or how much room he had to run because that was a gift from the heavens. Matthew Stafford would have been slaughtered there. And who knows? That would have been the turning point of the game to where if Tart intercepted that pass and was able to return it to whatever it was, chances are the Niners would have won the game. And for him to drop that ball was almost inexplicable as much as it was the pass that Stafford threw. Because Stafford went back to his Detroit Lion days at that point because I, I couldn't believe it. 
when that ball, when the camera panned over and you saw Tart just standing there, he could have made a fair catch. And he dropped the ball. I couldn't believe it. And then the next play was the pass on the sideline to Odell Beckham Jr. who took a shot. I mean, a wicked shot at that. By the defensive back. And a few plays later, they were able to set themselves up in field goal range. They tie the game. Away we go. And then it was just a matter of time before the Niners. And they weren't able to get anything on track. Yes, they were able to get the touchdown there to Debo Samuel. And then obviously later on with George Kittle. And that was after. Now let me get to that. When they scored that touchdown with 159 to go to make it 17-7, entering the fourth quarter, even on that drive before the Rams were able to cut it to three, why Sean McVay decided to challenge that fumble there where he had a terrible challenge in the first half on that uh, measure to where you could see Stafford, they went for it on fourth down, and he was completely stopped. There was no way that Stafford had cleared the First down line or the first down marker? No way. Why did he do that then? And then had the balls to throw the challenge here. What were the people upstairs looking at? I mean, to think that he is actually, and again, I understand he's going to listen to those people, but it was just beyond me to think that, no way. When he had his arm up in the air and he's ready to throw the flag, there was no way that 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 was a fumble. I couldn't believe it. It was almost like a panic move by McVay, who, I get it. He's the wonder boy. Everybody loves him. The young coach, the offensive wizard, whatever. He's a little bit of a front runner for me. I'll get to that later on. But now you lead up to the final drive. And obviously, as the Rams were looking to try to get themselves in field goal range, and they were able to do so because the Niners weren't able to do anything offensively after they made it 17 up. And then the Rams were able to make some big plays. I know Kendall Blanton was a guy that filled in nicely for Tyler Higby, who left early with a knee injury. He converted on a big third down on that go-ahead drive to where the Rams were able to take the lead at that point. And now it's just a matter of where the Ram defense, were they going to show up here one last time to... Stifle the Niner offense who pretty much didn't get anything going in the fourth quarter at all. And as you saw there, they were able to get a couple of stops. One pressure there by Aaron Donald and then the big pressure that led to the interception. And I get it. At that point, it was desperation by Jimmy G. He just tried to do what he can without getting sacked there. And sure enough, it was picked off and that's your ball game. And Aaron Donald, you are lucky, my man, because he would have been the first guy I would have pounded considering they won the game. Well, the guy's absolutely done nothing. But on that final drive, he did get a pressure and did get that. It was not called or ruled a sack because it was an interception. But for all intents and purposes, that would have been a sack. And therefore, that was the game or the play that sealed the game. And now the Rams survived. They could exhale. They made their Super Bowl. So the big gamble, not only this offseason with Matthew Stafford, a guy who sniffed the playoffs three times in his 11 years in Detroit, who has never been anywhere close to being in a conference championship game, now has delivered his team to the Super Bowl, which is going to be played in their own backyard. Now, I believe the Bengals are the home team. So even though it's not an NFC home game because they flip-flop year in and year out, and if you wonder why, you look at last year because the Chiefs had the red And Tampa wore the white. I believe they wore the white because, remember, they won all 
three of their games on the road. So they kept with the theme and had the whites wearing in their building as the home team last year in the Super Bowl. This time you're going to probably see the black. I would think you're going to see the black. I'd be surprised if you see the orange if you're the Bengals. But anyway, that's for next week. But the Rams did it. And first and foremost, Matthew Stafford, a stupendous job throughout this entire run. All right, Arizona was Arizona, big whoop, no big deal there. Had a great game in a cakewalk of a victory over the Cardinals. We know about last week. Big enough lead. Yes, the offense did spit up the ball a few times, Cooper Cup, Cam Akers, etc. But they were able to get the big plays when they needed, especially the breakdown there by the Tampa defense. But the throw was made, Stafford, the Cooper Cup, what's led to the game-winning field goal. And then yesterday too. You cannot say anything about Matthew Stafford up to this point because he stood and delivered. And that's all you could ask. Their defense, again, the Niner offense is nothing to write home about. But in that final drive, granted it was deep in Niner territory, they were able to salt the game away by getting a little bit of a rush on Garoppolo. He made the fatal mistake and they were able to win the game. Sean McVay, I'm not a big fan of his. To me, he's just a front runner. He's the type of guy where when he runs up and down the sidelines to greet his players and pats him on the helmet and pats him on the fanny and all this nonsense. I get it. As players are coming off the sideline, you want to celebrate and do things like that. And not to say he did that a lot yesterday. Of course, when the game was iced, you know he was going to do that. Understood. But I don't know. I think McVay, and as you saw there with those two challenges, to me... I'm not going to call him a great coach. Is he a good coach? Of course he is. And granted, he has a ton of talent here this year. And you can look back at the Super Bowl year in 2018. He brought his team to a Super Bowl and looked like he was about to be the youngest guy to ever win a Super Bowl. But as we all know, to me, that was all Wade Phillips and what they did on defense against the Patriots than it was more so on what McVay did offensively. And we all know Jared Goff had a game from hell. But now let's see what we could do here. And if you're the Niners... That is a bitter pill to swallow. 10-point lead heading into the fourth quarter. Unbelievable run here throughout this postseason. Winning in Dallas. Winning in Green Bay where nobody probably expected them to win. Although they were a live dog. And then you had a 10-point lead against a team that you've owned over the last three years. And it just went up in smoke. And if you're into Quisky Tart, I'm sure he hasn't slept a wink. And he probably will not sleep until training camp starts. Because that would have sealed the deal in my eyes and estimation. Because just like I talked about with Stafford early on with that pick on their opening drive and then the Fred Warner hit and all that, I don't know if he would have been able to come back from that, even if the Niners didn't score on that drive. But let's say they moved the chains and they flipped field position. But what if Stafford had come back from that? We'll never know. And Jaquiski Tart, oh, if you're a Niner fan, you're going to think about that from now until kingdom come. And they've had some brutal playoff losses over the years. And I think about it. They blew the Super Bowl two years ago. We know about that. The Super Bowl down in New Orleans. Where arguably they could have gotten a call there. On Michael Crabtree in the end zone when they lost to the Ravens. The loss to the Giants. If you remember, special teams failed them. I believe it was at Tyrone Williams. The ball deflects off of him. And the Giants recover. They kick a field goal. Go to the Super Bowl. Who can forget the game in Seattle where Richard Sherman deflected the ball 
and he called out Michael Crabtree. Uh, they've had some uh, just uh, terrible playoff losses. And there's another one that's going to stick. And moving forward, you're going to have Trey Lance as your quarterback next year because Jimmy G is going to be gone. And I know he's emotional in the postgame. But there you have it, people. Your Super Bowl is set. And I'm not going to get into any predictions right now or get into any specifics when it comes to the game itself. But some storylines that we could get into. First thing that comes to mind, obviously, second year in a row, you're going to have the team that occupies the building be in the Super Bowl. We saw that last year with Tampa, of course, and then now we have the Rams. Although they're not the home team, but we all know that they're going to have an advantage there playing in their building. You have Zach Taylor versus Sean McVay. Zach Taylor was a quarterback's coach on the early tenure of Sean McVay being the Ram coach. And as we know, when he left after the 2018 season, and of course that was after the Super Bowl, he was hired as the Bengal coach, so you know there's a tie there. You have two coaches that are under 40 for the first time facing off against each other in the Super Bowl. Andrew Whitworth, the longtime left tackle of the Bengals, as we all know, 40 years old, is now the left tackle and pretty much hanging on by a thread of the Rams. So there's going to be a lot that will be discussed there, especially during media day. So that's going to be not necessarily a homecoming, but just a connection there between he being a Bengal for so many years and now a member of the Rams. NBC's covering the game, so thank God we don't have to hear Romo anymore. Can I just throw in one thing about Tony Romo? I was trying not to go there when we talked about Bengals Chiefs, but now I'm talking about NBC, and I was going to talk about how Collinsworth is going to, of course, team up with Al Michaels, and Collinsworth was... Part of both Super Bowls in the 80s, Super Bowl 16 and Super Bowl 23. Now is going to be the color commentator of this game. But Tony Romo, and I tweeted this yesterday. Pay me one-tenth of what Romo makes and I'll do a much better job. And again, for those who want to get on me, oh, you never played in the NFL. Jaquiski Tart, you wouldn't have caught that ball. That's nonsense. Jay Reels, please. Color commentator, Romo played in the game. He knows the game, understands it a lot more than you can. Uh, I beg to differ. Did you hear what he said in the final few minutes? And I'm just going to highlight this. The final few minutes in regulation of this game where he thought the Bengal defense would just let the Kansas City Chiefs score? What are you, nuts? And then on top of that, where he even thought late in the game that the Chiefs should challenge for an illegal formation on the Bengals and it made me think to myself wait a second what are you nuts I believe it was that I don't think it was the Bengals throwing the challenge flag I think he mentioned Andy Reid I'll go back and take a look at it he mentioned that they should throw a challenge flag on an illegal formation to where Gene Steratore had to jump in and say no under rules you cannot challenge an illegal formation penalty when I heard that I almost fell out of my chair what is Romo talking about? Even Jim Nance, he had a terrible ending of the game too. We're talking about, oh yeah, I think he should score. But Romo is uh, he's on another planet. I can't believe he screwed that up. Listen, he's done some bad things and I've gotten on his case. But man, that was just the most egregious. Oh, I, I, as I'm sitting here, I still can't even fathom that he said that. 
And they're paying this guy $17 million to do these games? You might as well get somebody off the street to do these games because maybe they won't do a better job, but they're probably going to do the same exact job that Romo did. Uh, Just deplorable. But anyway, back to my storylines. The Rams are a three and a half point favorite in the game. As I mentioned, Cincinnati is the home team, technically, because the AFC it flip-flops year after year. One thing I'll say about the game before we move to news and notes on the league, the over-under number is 50. Right now, I'm going to say take the over. I think that's, if there's one lock, and I'm not a gambling man to say the least, but if there's one lock, take the over on this game. So next week, I'll have my preview. I'll get into the ins and outs, ups and downs, everything about the game. I'll give you my prediction, etc. But as we go through the league, and you had a lot of coaching hires here, especially over the last week, where Sean Payton stepped down after 16 years in New Orleans. Now he signed through 2024, so if there's a team that wants to engage, it's not going to be this coming year because Sean Payton did say he wants to take a year off. But if he does want to get back into coaching, and pretty much that's the indication he's going to go that route after the 2022 season, you're going to have to compensate him. And if that means you're Jerry Jones having Mike McCarthy anything short of a Super Bowl, he's going to be gone. And you know Jerry Jones is going to do whatever it takes to bring Sean Payton back to his old stomping grounds in Dallas. So that's one thing you're going to have to keep an eye out for, I would say, in the next 48, 49 weeks. The Giants hired their new coach, Brian Dable. No surprise there. Remember, the new GM, vice president of operations is Joe Schoen. So by Schoen coming from Buffalo, not only interviewing both Brian Dable and the the defensive coordinator, Leslie Frazier, he hires Dable. Now we know him working with Josh Allen over the years. And you would think this could be the last year to work with Daniel Jones. Let's see if he can work his magic there. That remains to be seen. I know that it's a hire that may not be favorable, especially here locally. I'm sure they probably wanted the guy that was going to be a name, someone that was a little bit more bonafide as opposed to another coordinator coming in to step in and do the job with your name in Giants coaches past. Ben McAdoo, Pat Shermer, Joe Judge was a special teams coordinator or coach, whatever. I'm sure they wanted somebody, maybe not as high as Jim Harbaugh, but somebody that is of recognition. But with Dayball, let's see what he could do with Daniel Jones, because to me, this is going to be it for Jones if it he's going to sink or swim as giant quarterback this upcoming season. Speaking of Jim Harbaugh, I know the Vikings have requested permission to speak with him. Why he would want to go to Minnesota is beyond me, but I guess the owner, Ziggy Wolf, is going to do whatever it takes to try to bring in the Michigan coach, we'll see how that shakes down. The Bears hired the Indianapolis Colts defensive coordinator, Matt Eberflus. Why? I don't know. Did he watch the tape of the last game against the Jacksonville Jaguars and how they did not make it into the playoffs because of that defensive performance? I don't know why. Nathaniel Hackett, who is the son of Paul Hackett, the longtime offensive coordinator throughout the NFL most notably with the Jets here, but he's been on a bunch of staffs, actually with the Chiefs, now that I think about it, in the early 90s. 
But Nathaniel Hackett is your coach, the former Packer offensive coordinator. And who knows if there's going to be a tie or connection to try to bring in either Aaron Rodgers or even maybe a guy like Devontae Adams who's going to be a free agent. So Denver's going to be put on notice this offseason as destinations for those two guys. And the last one being Josh McDaniels. I don't know what Mark Davis, and maybe this isn't a surprise because of who he is, but why Josh McDaniels is beyond me. We saw what happened in Denver there about 11, 12 years ago, how that experiment went up in flames, went back to New England, won some more Super Bowls. If you recall, a few years ago, the Colts hired him to be the coach, but after 24 hours, declined it. That's where Frank Reich stepped in. So now Mark Davis, and I don't know what the terms of the contract are, but for you to hand the keys to the castle over to Josh McDaniels? We've seen how the Patriot assistants have done in the NFL once they leave and flock out of Foxborough. All you got to do is look at Charlie Weiss, Romeo Cornell, Matt Patricia, the aforementioned McDaniels. Uh, We can go on down the list. Not Mike Vrabel because he wasn't a coach on the staff of Belichick. Remember, he did play there, but he wasn't a coach. But you had all these guys that have just pretty much gone up in smoke. Eric Mangini, although he had two successful years in New York, but he got his pink slip and then went to Cleveland and did nothing there. So they figured, hey, let's roll the dice and bring in McDaniels to work with who knows who the quarterback's going to be. And which leads to this. I understand these organizations with the Rooney rule. I'm sure they're abiding by it and rightfully so. But for the chance and opportunity how these guys are not getting jobs is beyond me. And we saw with David Culley how he was let go of Houston, not his fault, I might add. And his team did play hard down the stretch. Where you have Mike Tomlin as the only African-American coach in the league. And here it is, all these jobs are coming and going. And Jacksonville remains to be seen whether or not Byron Leftwich is going to be the guy. For all the tea leaves and the reports, it looks like he's going to be that guy. Considering, remember, he was the quarterback of the Jaguars there in the mid-aughts of the 2000s and with the success that he's had there in Tampa you would think he's just going to drive right up the road to Jacksonville be the head coach but what is going on here with these hirings McDaniels and no offense to these guys I'm not trying to rain on their parade but please did anybody hear of Matt Eberflus before two weeks ago or even Nathaniel Hackett? Man, give me a break. It makes you think that they bring in these one guy, like they just bring in the one candidate and that's it. All right, we've filled our quota and away we go. Now, I get, the only thing I could pretty much bank on is Brian Dable, he brings in Leslie Frazier and that was a layup for him because obviously he worked on the same staff with him up in Buffalo all these years before the GM Joe Schoen got the job with the Giants, but who are the people that were brought in to interview if you're Mark Davis in Las Vegas? Or I don't even think John Elway is a big part of the Denver scope as far as the front office goes, but who are the prospects that they brought in to talk that were of color? Same for Chicago. And let's see what happens down in Jacksonville because you know if Leftwich isn't going to get the job there, you're going to say to yourself, what the hell happened? Now granted, 
Leftwich, I believe, has gone for two interviews here, but ah, I tell you. And then last but not least, before we move on, two retirements or maybe one and a half, who knows, but if you didn't check my Instagram account, the J Reels podcast or Facebook, Twitter, I gave you my full-fledged send-off for one Ben Roethlisberger, how much he meant to me as a fan, watching him for 18 years, the Super Bowls, etc. I'm not going to rehash everything there. You could just pretty much go back. Again, Instagram, the J Reels podcast, or Twitter, J Reels one, just the number. Facebook is the J Reels podcast fan page. Check those sites. You could peep the video there. You'll get my whole full, I believe it was eight and a half minute video on that. So I won't rehash anything that was already said. But as far as Tom Brady goes, now did Adam Schefter and Jeff Darlington jump the gun here on Brady finally after 22 years and seven Super Bowls going off into the sunset? Now Brady did not release a statement and he did say that he has not informed the league or the Buccaneers that he has retired. And I understand these people want to get these stories first and everybody has their fingers on the pulse of whether or not This is it for Brady. But you got to wonder if this was a little premature on their part and this isn't to knock their reporting or their sources or whatever. But for Brady to come out and say, hey, I haven't made a decision, although it looks like he's leaning in that direction, but leaning in that direction and making it official are two different things. So I didn't put up a post, nor should I, because I'm not a Patriot fan, but we know how much Brady has been a part of this league for over two decades. But it makes you think, You wonder if Brady, just a little bit of him has that Jordan, I took that personally, DNA to where he may come out and say, no, I'm coming back for one more year and make Schefter and Darlington look like fools. So we'll have to keep an eye on on whether or not Brady is going to call a career or has called it a career. Who knows? Right now it's not official, but we will see how that unfolds over the weeks to come. All right, now let's turn our attention to the association and a couple of interesting notes have been percolating here over the last week. One looks like it's been diffused. The other one, who knows, but let's get right to it. I'll start off with James Harden and the Brooklyn Nets and with Kevin Durant sidelined for probably another few more weeks with that knee injury and then Kyrie being in and out of the lineup, of course, only playing in road games, not playing in home games. There was a report early in the week where James Harden has been a little disgruntled based on a couple of factors. One being the decision-making toward the end of games, I guess when it comes to drawing up plays or philosophy, who knows. But Harden has not been favorable of what Nash has been drawing up here as we get to the latter stages of these games. So who knows if there's a difference of opinion or philosophy when it comes to player and coach, not that it should matter because it should be all in the coach, but as we all know, Steve Nash, former player, former two-time MVP, you know he's just there to pretty much, I hate to say it like this, he's pretty much just to regulate the egos and babysit to have these players coalesce in order for them to win a championship. Uh, Let's call it as we see it. And then on top of that, the situation with Kyrie, which seemed like it 
had fizzled because there was a highlight that I saw, I think it was a week ago, or maybe this past week. I don't think it was in Cleveland, but you saw some togetherness at the end of the game where Kyrie went up to James Harden and he kind of hugged it out. And there was some smiling and some good-natured behavior. Nothing that was anything to raise an eyebrow or maybe even question the stance of Harden as it is the hierarchy of the Nets have said that there's no way that he's going to be on the trading block, that they're not going to entertain any type of trade requests, whether from teams outside or even look to trade from the powers that be on the inside. So it looks to be as of right now, all as well with Harden, the Nets, maybe even the coach for that matter. Currently, Harden is actually out or has not played. He didn't play in the game against Golden State because of a hand strain that was shown or revealed during an MRI. Who knows how long he's going to be out of the lineup. And with a bunch of road games, I believe they play in Phoenix tomorrow. So you're going to see a lot of Kyrie here as they go through the stretch of a West Coast swing. And Brooklyn right now, they are certainly in a tailspin as they've lost... I want to say five in a row, if I'm not mistaken. Or maybe I'm jumping the gun there a little bit. No, four in a row, excuse me. So they've gone from pretty much second in the conference down to sixth in the East. And you would think that once everybody's healthy and together, that's going to be a whole different story. But with the Nets, you certainly don't want to go far two down. You don't want to be that team that's going to play all of its games on the road. But who knows? Maybe that will be a beneficiary because of Kyrie and his status that maybe playing on the road will be helpful for them knowing that if they have to win a game seven on the road you'll have Kyrie in uniform I get that that's looking at it from a jaded and even from a cynical perspective but the Nets not playing well obviously have their big star out and Harden who knows how long he's going to be out of lineup in the foreseeable future And then you have the situation with Ben Simmons in Philadelphia as the Sixers have played well and they've won five in a row. But there was actually a suitor or so it looked like in Sacramento that they were kicking the tires to see what they could do to bring the disgruntled all-star out west. They have a bunch of assets, but for whatever the reason or deal, the Sixers balked at it. They felt that the package wasn't enough and Sacramento said, All right, no problem with that. We're out of here. And good for Sacramento that they didn't budge. Who knows if they're going to come back to the table with a deal or to put together some picks or a guy like Buddy Heald, which I know may be the focal point of a trade. But if you're the Sixers, I get it. You want to try to get a King's Ransom and then some. But when you have a player who is limited offensively and is owed 140 some odd million dollars, I get it. You're going to try to get as much as you can for that player and for his talent. But as we all know, his potential is very low and has not improved over the years as an offensive player. And who knows what he's been up to during this time where he's been idle. Yes, he's probably been practicing, working out as he's been working on his game. Who knows? So with the trade deadline just 10 days away, and that's going to be interesting for certain teams that are looking to get some reinforcements especially some of the teams that you may not expect to make trades. Because when we think about teams that are trying to jockey for position, you were talking about the teams that are looking either for that bench guy or that role player to fill in, let's say, a team like the Heat 
or the Sixers, or even the Bucks for that matter, or out West, maybe Golden State, Utah, which they've lost now, I believe, five in a row. The Jazz, they've uh, certainly hit the skids here. Yes, they have lost five in a row. You figure teams like that will look to try to pluck a player off of a bad team. But to me, I'm going to be more fascinated to see what the Cavaliers do. Or even the Charlotte Hornets. Maybe even the Memphis Grizzlies. Teams like that, that want to not only continue to keep their standing in the East or the West, but to even maybe take a bigger leap, maybe move up to third, maybe second, and not just be that middling team that may be somewhere in four, five, or six. That's what I'm going to be focused in on or to see which team will make that leap. But still, we got 10 days, obviously another week and a half to digest this. So we'll see how that plays out. But otherwise, the Suns continue to remain red hot. Winners of 10 in a row. Golden State has played well as they try to keep pace out west with the Suns. The East, we talked about the Sixers playing well. Miami still has the top spot in the East where the Bulls are just a half game behind them in the standings. You're going to have competitiveness here. Even the Hawks have played well winning seven in a row and now put themselves 10th in the Eastern Conference. We just talked about it, what was it, two weeks ago at the halfway point, how the Hawks were the... Well, one of the disappointing teams in the NBA, and here they are now, even though a game under 500, but knowing that that play-in tournament exists, 7-10, through 10, they put themselves now in the mix there in the Eastern Conference. Let's see if they can continue to trend upward there and elevate themselves or continue to creep up in the standings. The Lakers, LeBron had to go home, or <clears throat> the Expendables, he had to leave toward the end of the road trip to get his knee examined and the Lakers right now are currently three games under 500. I I don't even know what else to say. There really isn't anything to say about this team. And I get it that Frank Vogel, he's going to be the guy off the ship. But it's not all his fault. Part of it has to do with the front office and LeBron because he's the pseudo-GM of the team. And as I said before, and I'll say it one last time, when you bring this mishmash of former All-Stars and former MVPs and All-NBA players to kind of bail you out and to piecemeal this team to the point where they're just basing it on past performance and not chemistry, not being able to gel together, and on top of that, stay healthy, how do you expect this team to be the powerhouse that they once were when they won a title a couple years ago. It's not going to be in the cards for the Lakers this year, people. I don't know how else to cut it. So that's what you got there with the NBA. Nothing much really needs to be discussed and their all-star break actually comes in a couple of weeks. Speaking of which, as we transition to the NHL, they have their all-star game this upcoming week. And that's one that the NHL, oh man, you know that they're going to exhale and put their feet up at least for 48 hours because as we've talked about ad infinitum and what they had to go through this first part of the schedule and with the NHL players not going to Beijing to perform as far as the hockey goes, they can make up this time right after the All-Star break with a bunch of games that the schedule makers were able to include here over that two and a half week stretch where the players would have been fighting for a gold, silver, and bronze medal. Now that the schedule is pretty much set, 
And with the cases pretty much plateauing or starting to come down, you haven't heard a lot about players. And granted, there's going to be a lot of travel in and out of Canada, which that's a whole other argument to get into. But you wonder whether or not the league could now set their sights on trying to get some semblance of a regular season to where they can make up these games, get their season on track, and get to April and the end of April to where they're able to get all 82 games in. Everybody will be on even footing, hopefully when you get toward late March into April, and then you could really take a deep breath and get set for a Stanley Cup run in the spring into early summer. Besides that, the NHL's had a couple of interesting notes this week. One being the Ironman. And I understand that that's small potatoes. I mean, should anybody really care about that? Well, it is an accomplishment in the NHL, considering that the previous Ironman streak of 964 games was held by Doug Jarvis. He was a forward in the late 70s, into the 80s, mostly for the Washington Capitals, but also played on the Montreal Canadiens. And he had the... Ironman streak of 964 games which was snapped earlier this week by Philadelphia defenseman Keith Yandel. Now he's bounced around on several teams. He played out in Arizona. He was actually a Phoenix Coyote before they were Arizona. Played for the Rangers, also for the Florida Panthers, now with the Flyers. So he eclipsed Doug Jarvis and that Ironman streak as he sets his sights on getting a thousand under his belt. But there is one other player in the league that's not too far behind him. And that's Phil Kessel. And he's bounced around everywhere. Bruins, Penguins. I believe he was also on the Toronto Maple Leafs. And Kessel is a guy that I believe is about 24 games behind Keith Yandel. So it's not as if he's 100 games or even 80 games. If Yandel, let's say for argument's sake, goes down with an injury, he could be surpassed this year. Because you still have about what? 38 to 40 games depending on the team left in their season so even though Yandel could hold that imaginary trophy up high who knows an injury or whatever the case may be he could easily pass that on to the next guy if something happens here over the course of the next couple of weeks so I just thought it was fascinating because anytime you have Iron Man streaks in any of the sports now right is this going to be Cal Ripken surpassing Lou Gehrig? Of course it isn't. And in the NBA, I know A.C. Green had all those games that he had played consecutively when he was a member mostly of the Lakers and then later on with the Mavericks. I believe he still has the all-time record, but even then, I couldn't even tell you in Major League Baseball who has that streak right now currently, and it doesn't matter because nobody's going to even come close to what Cal Ripken has done. But I just thought it was an interesting note to bring here to the table when it comes to especially the NHL because we all know how brutal that sport is and that is a sport of attrition bumps, bruises, checks sticks to the face, pucks to the face stitches, etc and Yandel, kudos to you my guy for being the NHL's all time Ironman to date now you also have a scenario in Edmonton and we know Edmonton has not played well here over the last six to eight weeks or so. And then they also had to get shut down due to COVID. But they signed Evander Kane. And he was a guy that I talked about a lot in the summer. A guy that had controversy swirling around him left and right. Whether it was 
his estranged wife accusing Kane of gambling on NHL games, including his own team. Also had an issue with COVID to where he was suspended. I believe it was 24 games last year or in the 20s due to violating COVID protocols last year. And I don't know if that had to do with fake vaccination cards or him saying that he got vaccine or whatever it was. But he had to be put on ice, no pun intended there. Alleged domestic disputes with his estranged wife that I don't even know if they're in the process of getting divorced. Obviously, it's none of my business. But the reason why I bring all this up is because the Oilers are signing him. And I believe that there's been a little bit of an outcry as to why with everything that's gone on with him off the ice and why the Oilers would sign this guy, all Evander Kane said in his press conference, and they only signed him, I believe, for the remainder of this year. But Kane pretty much said that, yes, he's had his issues, that all he's asking is for a second chance, and that he's going to do well and stand by the second chance and take advantage, etc., etc. But I guess there's a lot of people that don't like the move, whether it's up in Edmonton or throughout the league or with fans. So we'll see how Kane plays for an Edmonton Oilers team that is, I thought, was going to be one of the teams to be reckoned with here in the league. And they certainly did play like that from the start. But ever since the midway point, uh, maybe before that, because even with the COVID cancellations that they had, especially when they came here in New York, if you remember a few weeks back, and I even talked about it, how once they got to Toronto, after their little sojourn here in the tri-state area, McDavid, their top player and the reigning MVP had to be put in COVID protocol. They were in the midst of a long losing streak and certainly was slipping in the standings out West. So who knows what Kane will do as he makes his entrance back into the league and onto the Oilers. So that's something we'll keep an eye on. And Edmonton right now, as I look, they've actually turned their season around and they won four in a row. So who knows? Does this, is this maybe a boon or a little boost for the organization by bringing in a guy like Kane, who is a rugged winger and a good forward? Or is this going to be a little bit of a setback? Remains to be seen, so we'll certainly keep our eyes on that. Other than that, pretty much the league has been the same. It seems like the Atlantic, one week it's Tampa, one week it's Toronto, the next week it's Florida. Now Florida, it has a three-point lead over Tampa in the Atlantic, so you have that. Same for the Carolina Hurricanes and the Rangers. They seem to flip-flop week after week. The Avalanche have played, going back to last week, where they overtook Nashville in the Central. Now they've won 10 in a row, but they also lost Nathan McKinnon as he had suffered not only concussion, but also a facial fracture by the Bruins' Taylor Hall. He's going to be out for three games. You would think he'll come back once he clears protocol and is feeling better, but the Avalanche have certainly taken off here and have now put themselves with a 9-point lead out in the Central Division and a 10-point lead over Minnesota as the Wild were in the area this weekend. They beat the Islanders there yesterday and they also are winners of five in a row, so the Wild seem to be playing a lot better. They've been kind of up and down. And then you have out West where it's a logjam at the top between the Golden Knights, Ducks, and Kings, all separated by two points, 55, 54, 53. As 
we get closer to this all-star break for the NHL and we'll see how this season takes shape over the course of the next few weeks. All right, before I get to baseball, the Winter Olympics, and then my hero in zero of the week, I want to touch on our first tennis Grand Slam champion of the calendar year, and that goes to Rafael Nadal. Now, mind you, you could put an asterisk if you want next to this tournament because with Novak Djokovic not participating for reasons we certainly don't have to get into, but with him not being there to defend his Open champion from last year, Nadal, as we talked about last week, not going to say that he had a red carpet to a victory because he did have to beat a couple of players along the way and it looked like he was going to face off against Daniil Medvedev in which he did and in comeback fashion there yesterday as he not only wins his second Australian Open ever but is now on the mountaintop of all-time Grand Slam champions with 21 beating, or I should say passing, both Roger Federer and Novak Djokovic. And Nadal, who had foot surgery just a couple of months ago and had to overcome that, as well as a bunch of injuries that he had last year where he didn't participate in Wimbledon. I think a lot of that had to do with the pandemic and what was going on there. But for Nadal to gut this one out, even with Djokovic not there, and for him to get this title, it makes you wonder what's going to happen here this coming spring because the French Open, as we know, that is his playground. He has won 12 tournaments there. I believe even 13 now that I think about it. Because if I do the math, I believe he's won 13, and then he's won four U.S. Opens, two Wimbledons, and two Australians. So that makes sense. So by him having a leg up over his peers, he could actually have two victories over those guys. He has plenty of time to get healthy. The French Open isn't until late May. And you know that he's going to zero in and focus on trying to get that championship to separate him even a bit more because, what is he, 35 years old, maybe 36 at this stage, he's not going to win many more of these tournaments. And even though the French, that's his realm, that's his domain, he could certainly add another one to his Hall of Fame career. And whether or not he could do so remains to be seen. I'm sure Novak Djokovic, he's going to be chomping at the bit to get back, not only on a court, but on a chance to win a Grand Slam title and equal Nadal and that would be his next step and certainly would be a big achievement even though Novak, if you remember, did beat Nadal in the semifinal last year at Roland Garros. So you have a very interesting storyline although it's still a few months away and for the three tennis fans that are out there but that's one that you'll have your antenna up as we get closer knowing that Nadal could extend that lead and Djokovic could even that and where does Roger Federer fit in all this as he's coming off a knee surgery dating back to last year it's going to be quite fascinating and you still have some time to chew on it but whether or not Nadal is going to be able to go on the surface to where he's been by far the dominant men's player in clay court history and 
Let's see whether that will take Nadal when the time comes. And then you had Ashley Barty, who on the women's side was able to win the championship, her first Australian Open. Actually, she's the first Australian to win in 44 years. That went to Chris O'Neill back in 1978. She won in straight sets, actually came back down 1-5 in the second set to win her third career Grand Slam. I believe she's won now the, not only the Australian Wimbledon and the U.S. Open. I believe the one thing that's missing is the French. So for her, if you want to talk about a storyline, that will be something that she'll try to shoot for and attain her career Grand Slam come later this spring. And that's pretty much what you have with the tennis. I know that the Djokovic thing maybe put a little bit of a downer in some circles, or who knows, maybe that was one that a lot of people certainly didn't want to pay attention to because they felt as if, ah, the tournament's not going to mean much because he's not there to not only defend this title, but also to try to extend his career lead as far as all-time Grand Slam tournaments are concerned. So we could put tennis on the back burner for now as we're able to close out the first tournament of the new year. As far as the baseball, real quick, I know Ortiz got 77% of the vote, which meant Barry Bonds, as well as Roger Clemens, did not get the 75% that is needed to qualify in order to be voted into the Hall of Fame. I know that it's been all... Or nothing with this, as far as the hypocrisy goes over the past week. How if Ortiz is in the Hall of Fame, you got to put Bonds in there. You got to put Clemens in there. Because the accusations over the years with Ortiz and the Mitchell report in particular. How he was on that list of players who had taken performance enhancing drugs. Now, I don't believe it was a thing where he failed to test. Because if he would have failed to test... And this goes back how many years now? I guess we're going back to 2007. Now, a lot of rules weren't implemented as far as suspensions and things of that nature. But you have that controversy swirling around Ortiz. So therefore, if he's in, why not Bonds and Clemens? I haven't really shared my stance on this and I'll do so right now. Ortiz is a Hall of Famer as we know. Has he failed a drug test? He has not. Did he do PEDs? I don't know. I wasn't with the Red Sox. I wasn't around the team. Would I be shocked if he took them? Absolutely not. Does he deserve to be in the Hall of Fame if he did so? Listen, I'm not the morality police when it comes to that. We understand that PEDs hit the ball farther. I know you still got to make contact, etc., whatever. At this point, all I have to say is this. Whether your name is Barry Bonds, whether your name is Roger Clemens, even A-Rod, who got 34% of the vote, First time on the ballot. If these guys get in, and if you've watched their games, you know that these guys were cheaters. That these guys were frauds. And I understand you're not going to reward these guys for cheating, for taking steroids to the guys who haven't, especially in yesteryear and even throughout this era. Whether your name is Derek Jeter, he's the first guy that pops into mind that you, listen, you 100% know Of course not, but you figure in your gut when you ask yourself, did Derek Jeter ever take steroids? You're going to say no. So to that player, even Sammy Sosa, who got 80% and he's off of the Hall of Fame ballot. 
How I look at it is this. Are these guys Hall of Famers in my eyes, in my mind? Yes. Are they cheaters? Of course. Do they deserve to be in the Hall of Fame? I'm old school, so I'm going to say no. Those guys, we know they had the numbers, and we could talk about how Bonds and Clemens, before they took steroids, that they were already Hall of Fame talents and they deserved to go in. Understood. But in my eyes, just like I know Pete Rose's, now that's for a separate issue that has nothing to do with steroids, but I know these guys were Hall of Fame players and didn't need to take the steroids, and I will still marvel at what they did on the field. But should they be celebrated in the same way that Derek Jeter was? Or here's another guy, Ken Griffey Jr. of Risa Nilk. Guys that you knew were first ballot, lock Hall of Famers. And how those guys are going to get lumped with a guy like Ken Griffey Jr.? Do they deserve that? Do those players deserve their time to step up on a podium in Cooperstown knowing that they cheated the game? I'm going to say no. But at the end of the day, do I really care a thousand percent whether these guys get in or not? Of course not. But I know in my mind and my heart and my soul how great these players were, but what they did to the game was unforgivable. And therefore, I wouldn't vote them in. So that's my stance on it. As for the latest between the players and owners, not really much progress, although there were certain things that were taken off the table in reference to free agency by the players and revenue sharing, you know, asking the league to funnel away from the small market teams because we all know a lot of the small market teams that just pocket the money they're not going to reinvest it into their rosters, players, etc. And then the owners, they also took some stuff off the table too, changing the reserve period before free agency from six to five years, that which would also lower the arbitration eligibility to two years. So there have been discussions there, but there hasn't been any headway as far as progress goes. But I guess just coming to the table and actually speaking is progress because We thought once upon a time, if they're not speaking, that means they're not going to hammer out an agreement at any point. So I guess we have to look at this as a moral victory that they have been meeting. Now, I don't know when the next time they're going to reconvene. I don't know if it's sometime this week. As I said, they did reconnect last Monday and Tuesday prior to a meeting right at the start of the new year. So who knows? Pitchers and catchers are scheduled, although they won't. Obviously, if an agreement doesn't come to fruition, but two weeks from today, you would start seeing some action. But if there isn't going to be anything signed on the dotted line, we'll have to postpone that until further notice. So we shall see. That's all I can say about that. And then lastly, is anybody really into this upcoming Winter Olympics? I know the games are in Beijing, and I'm sure a lot of people want to boycott that unto itself because of where it's being played or where the Olympics are obviously being hosted. But as I've said before, and I'll say it again, I have absolute zero big fat donut of watching, following, or even thinking about investing anytime I'm watching these games. And it's no offense to the athletes, no offense to anybody that's trained over the last four years to reach their heights for gold, for silver, bronze, etc. But as I've said before, I just have no interest. To me, it's one of those things that once it's over and done with, you forget about it. I mean, unless there's a Michael Phelps coming out of this Olympic Games, am I going to be that interested in who wins in downhill skiing? 
or speed skating, forget about the hockey. So I just have zero interest. And again, that's no offense to, and it's not even offense to the participants in every country, and in particular the U.S. I just, the immortal words, if it's in my backyard, I'm going to close the blinds. That's all there is to it. I, I just don't have an interest. Sorry. Now, if there's a story or something that comes out of it where I'm going to have to discuss it, I'll get into it and I'll follow it and I'll make sure that either I have an opinion or a certain analysis about it. I'm not going to be that stupid, but at the same time, I'm not going to go and thinking, hey, this guy is going to be the front runner to win X amount of gold medals or hey, what about the hockey teams? No, not this guy. So you can forget about that. So you got that upcoming this Thursday, I believe, of the opening ceremonies, February the 3rd. So if that tickles your fancy, I'm sure you'll look forward to that. So let me wrap up, people. Let's get to it. My hero and zero of the week. My hero of the week goes to, believe it or not, Joel Embiid. You ask why? Last week, he offered and covered the fine due to double technicals with New Orleans Pelican guard Jose Alvarez in a game that took place early last week. As, quote, and this is a reference to Alvarez, I just like his energy. He plays hard. He competes. Even when he picked up the tech, he wasn't backing down. Just regular trash talk. Two guys going at each other on the basketball court. He didn't back down. I respected that. I liked that about him. And then he mentioned that after the game, he told him to keep on fighting, gave him some very encouraging advice and some words. And he just said, and I quote, I just felt like that was on me and I didn't want him to lose that money because I'm sure we all need it. So I'm going to pick up his tab. Joel Embiid, I've knocked you on this podcast from pillar to post, but this one, I got to big up you, my guy. So you are my hero of the week. And mind you, it was only a $2,000 fine. And mind you that Alvarado is making, I think, $464,000. But he figured, hey, let me cover it. I got you. So good job by Embiid. I like that. And my zero of the week, let's keep it in Philadelphia. What was that fan thinking of trying to not only just heckle, which Carmelo Anthony understood, but for to call him boy in the process? Now, granted, he has been suspended indefinitely from the Wilkes Fargo Center, which is the home of the... Sixers as well as the Flyers so I guess he can't go to Flyer games as well but why would he engage to where Carmelo actually made a beeline toward the guy and went back at it back and forth with him I get it that is a no-win situation for Carmelo Anthony of course it didn't escalate to anything uglier thank God for that although Anthony did remain cool And although he did approach the fan by not getting into the stands or even getting to the sideline, he was intercepted by one of the referees as he was doing so. But Carmelo did stand his ground. And I know it's tough to kind of turn the other cheek sometimes. And as we've seen with these display of fans in these arenas, whether it was toward Russell Westbrook last year with the popcorn in the playoffs, here the situation with Carmelo, many outbursts in Utah as we've seen over the years with the fans and the players. But for that fan to do that and to call him out like that, yeah, you want to say, ah, Melo, you suck, or go home, or ah, you're washed, or that's one thing. But to go that route, to call him what he did, inexplicable, just indefensible, and I'm not even going to mention his name, but he is my zero of the week. 
That'll do it as I wrap up episode 236, my good people. And as I like to say in closing, I appreciate your time. I appreciate your participation to listen to what it is I have to say about what goes on in the world of sports. I do not take that lightly. I thank you from the bottom of my heart to download or to stream from wherever you get your podcasts. And I hope so that in the process, you've also subscribed, rated, and reviewed this pod on wherever you listen to your podcast because all that's going to do is increase the visibility. Throw me a few stars, write a review just to get the name out because I'm a one-man operation. I don't have a marketing team. I don't have a team under me that could get the word out about this podcast as I do my best to work behind the scenes to get it out there to the masses. So if you haven't done so, please subscribe, rate, and review. I would greatly and sincerely appreciate it. As far as... Follow me on social media if you want to shoot me a comment, question, criticism, praise, whatever it may be. I do not care. You could do so, as I mentioned earlier, on Instagram, J Reels or the J Reels Podcast. On Instagram, J Reels 1, just a number. On Facebook, the J Reels Podcast. Or the old-fashioned way, the J Reels Podcast at gmail.com. Please send it my way. I'll be sure to follow up ASAP. And then lastly, to contribute to this podcast, you could do so at www.patreon.com slash the J Reels Podcast. That's P as in Paul, A-T as in Tom, R-E-O-N as in Nancy. Whatever you want to put forth, I would greatly appreciate it. It's going 100% to this podcast, whether it's the upkeep of the website, whether it's the production when it comes to equipment, Everything that gets put together behind the scenes by me so I could put forth this podcast to make it as clear and as concise through your earbuds or through your speakers as I could possibly can. Because whether you do or do not know, this is what I love to do, people. I'm not going anywhere as long as the good Lord wants to have me on his green earth. It's in my DNA. It's in my blood to talk sports, to break down, to analyze, to opinionate on everything and anything. That goes on in the world of the diamond, the ice, the gridiron, the hardwood, golf course, racetrack, tennis court, octagon, boxing ring, you name it. From my lips to your ears, from my heart to your soul, from where I am to wherever you are, the J Reels podcast always comes correct, direct, and in full effect. From the South Bronx, the South Beach, the South Central, the South Pacific, and all points beyond, peace, love, and God bless everybody. And until next time on the J Reels podcast, on the flip, baby. <laughs>